So here's the thing. We actually, we live in a society where your ability to keep, or to earn and to keep a job is dependent on your performance, right? On your success in working that job, on your achievement at that job. You know what, for what it's, for what it's worth, that's a good thing. Like if you're going to spend money, or if your boss is going to spend money, like, yeah, it's good to be good stewards of money, right? You should ensure that the money you're spending is returning on its investment, I get that. But this reality that, that um, our performance and our success at performance and our achievement actually is, is how we earn our keep, that reality bleeds over into every other aspect of how we operate in society. Right, this reality colors how we think about everything. So when we think about our personal failure in our work life or in our school life, for that matter, we connect our personal failure to our usefulness. If I have failed personally, that must make me useless, right? We connect uh, moral failure to our identity, right? Because if I fail in my job, I'm useless to my boss. If I fail in my life, I'm useless to God. Or in the case of kids, if I fail uh, in relation to certain schoolwork and, and my identity is in my achievement and that's how I impress my parents or my, my teachers or whatever, if I fail in that, I must be useless. And we take that concept and we carry it over into the rest of our life, right? So we might think something like, if I struggle against sin, God can't use me for what it's worth. Like, we're all struggling against sin, right? So if God is using people, he's using people who are struggling against sin. If I had a past failure, God doesn't really want me. My failure must prove that I'm no good for the work that God wants to do. And we believe these things because we live in a society that is oriented towards achievement, right? My value, my purpose, my identity is based on my performance because that's what we're told in every other sphere, Right, so church, I have really good news for you. The good news is this. With Jesus, your failure cannot overcome your purpose. With Jesus, your failure cannot overcome your purpose. We're called Renovation Church for a reason. Right, the resurrection of Jesus actually means something to us. It means that we can truly be given the opportunity to become what the Bible calls new creations. Right, when we come to God, we turn from our own way of doing things, we decide to follow Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus remakes us or renews us. He makes us new creations. And with this new creation identity comes a new purpose. And the amazing thing is that that purpose, that all of the other purposes that we might have in this world, they can be diminished by our sin and our failure. This new purpose that we've been given as new creations cannot be diminished by our sin or our failure. Sin has no authority or power over the new purpose that we have been called to serve. Failure cannot derail that purpose for us. It's ever always extended to us to live into as certainly as the resurrection of Jesus is certain. And so as we finish John's gospel today, we're gonna discover our purpose together in light of Jesus' resurrection and not in light of our own failure. And we're gonna do that by considering uh, Jesus' kind of post-resurrection interaction with one particular disciple. So John 21 comes to us as kind of like an epilogue of the Gospel of John. Uh, If you remember last week during Easter, we talked about John said, you know, many other things could be said uh, about what Jesus did, but these things have been written so that you may believe. And that felt kind of like an ending, 
But then he, he carries on and he tells this little extra bit of the story at the end of his gospel. And what we know about Jesus' resurrection is Jesus kind of had this, uh, after he raised from the dead, he, he had this 40-day resurrection ministry that he carried out. He went around and uh, after three years of, of teaching people and healing people and ministering to people and eating with people, he built a lot of relationships. He made a number of connections. And what we can assume is happening right now and the accounts of Jesus' resurrection that we're giving is, is this sense that he's no longer going and ministering with 12 people, like going around and ministering with 12 people. What he's doing is he is appearing to the various people that he spent time with as he was doing his three-year ministry on earth. He's going around and appearing to all kinds of people. He's actually got quite a packed schedule over these 40 days. He's going around and he's meeting with people and he's eating with them and having conversations with them. And the thing that he's most importantly doing is helping them see that he is, in fact, alive after they killed him. And then he leaves, you know, he'd leave from that place, presumably to go and appear to other people. So the Apostle Paul records for us that Jesus, after he was raised, he actually appeared to like over 500 people. That there were people in the early church that you could go and talk to, and they said, yeah, I saw Jesus after they killed him. It was crazy. And and so the disciples are one group among many of the groups of people to whom Jesus appeared. So so we're going to kind of now narrow our focus on a few of the disciples. As we come to John chapter 21, we are very likely two to three weeks after Jesus has risen from the dead. At this point, they have now traveled. They're in Jerusalem for Passover. They have now traveled from Jerusalem back to their home in Galilee. This is like a two or three day journey that, they're, that they've gone on. And so now they're, they're back home. And, and they're in this place where they lack a sense of vision and clarity about what to do next. So uh, John chapter 21. Verse one, it says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Verse two, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And verse three, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I I want you to make some observations with me. The first is that Jesus is, in fact, alive, right? But they can't figure out what to do with that reality, right? The second, I mean, the second then thing worth noticing is that this is not a necessarily victorious scene. Like, imagine that you walked around with a person for three years, and then every force in the world aligned against that person in order to put him to death, and, uh, and then after three days, he rises from the dead. Uh, imagine, I mean, I, yes, it's confounding, and yes, it's hard to understand, but just imagine what your particular response to that situation might be. Like, this is, well, well the situation that we see is not a totally depressing scene. They do seem kind of aimless, right? They, do, they don't seem like they, they know what to do next. They're not out ministering to people because of what Jesus has done. They're not praying together or worshiping together. They're not out preaching about the things that have happened to Jesus. We, we get the sense that there's a bit of purposelessness happening. And so the third thing that I want you to notice is that this 
is not what you would expect after seeing the risen Jesus, right? You want to take this picture in light of the other picture that we already have of the disciples. Uh, after Jesus was risen, um, Jesus appeared to them in the middle of the room. They didn't quite yet know that he was risen, but he appeared to them. And they, it, the Bible tells us that they were all afraid. They were gathered together and they were scared. They thought that people were gonna blame them for taking the body of Jesus and they had this sense that they were in mortal danger of some kind. They were hiding in fear and now you add that to the fact that they're moseying about with this sense of purposelessness and like you would think that they would be far more joyful and celebratory, right? But we don't see that. In fact, we don't really start to see that until the book of Acts. I want you to add to that now a little interaction that Jesus had with them uh, a few weeks ago when he did appear to them in the middle of that room. John 20, verses 21 through 23. It says, Jesus said to them again, you might have noticed that I skipped over this last week. Uh, I'm not going to skip over it this week. We will address it. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is one of the most challenging passages in all of scripture for it's debated by people all the time. Uh, and, And why? Well, everybody knows that the Holy Spirit doesn't come until Pentecost. But here, it appears that Jesus is giving the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. Uh, So, you add to that the verse that happens right after he says, receive the Holy Spirit, And it seems like Jesus tells them, hey, if you hold personal grudges against people, those personal grudges don't have to be forgiven, right? That's like, if you just read it at a surface level. So if you isolate this passage from its context, I can understand how you might draw those conclusions, but I want you to look at the guiding phrase of the whole thing. In verse 21, Jesus says, I am sending you just as the Father sent me, right? What he's saying is, you have a purpose, Right? I'm giving you a purpose. Right now, you're gathered here, you're afraid, you're, you're fearful, but now, like, you're getting ready to go into a time where you will go forward in boldness. And then, as if to say to them, let me tell you what you really need to do this, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. What it seems that Jesus is doing here is not giving them the Holy Spirit. Now, what was the Holy Spirit gonna do? Well, if you've been reading the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit was gonna equip them to do this ministry in a joyful, bold, profound way to change the world, right? To to massively impact things, to draw people to faith in Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit was going to do. But it seems that in this moment, Jesus is not giving them the Holy Spirit right then and there. What it seems that he's doing is something different that he's done pretty regularly before. Jesus has these things that he does that are kind of like prophetic actions, where he will, uh, for example, speak a curse over an olive tree, and then that olive tree will display that curse, and that, that is meant to be a prophetic action in a certain way. In the same way here, when Jesus breathes out and says, receive the Holy Spirit, It seems that Jesus is kind of performing a prophetic action of something that's going to happen that's gonna be very important for them as as they engage in his mission. And so, so it's kind of just as a matter of telling them, I'm alive, and now that I'm alive, the next thing that you need is for me to send 
the Holy Spirit to you. Right, and then in verse 23, what he does is he's kind of putting some authority on them. This is part of his commission to them. In, in fact, if verse 23 is kind of similar to how a rabbi passes on authority to their followers. Right, he's, he's not saying to them, check who you hold your grudges against. He's saying the message that you have is going to have authority. I'm sending you and you need the Holy Spirit and then whoever you take the teaching to with the Holy Spirit, you take my teaching about God's will, about obeying God's will, about believing in Jesus and receiving forgiveness and if they follow what you say, right, and this is essentially what he's saying, you are now rabbis in the shape of me. I'm making you into rabbis and I'm sending you out to teach the things that I teach so that when they believe your words, it will be as if they have received forgiveness because they have indeed been forgiven if they receive those words. So, so just, he's saying, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You are going in the same way that I have come. You will need the Holy Spirit. You will preach a message that people, when they believe it, will be able to be forgiven. So in this re- interaction with them, in the middle of their fear, by the way, Jesus is pointing out to them their need. And it, is see, it essentially seems like he's, he's saying, well, they're all shaking and worried about what's going to happen to them. It won't be like this when Holy Spirit gets here. It's gonna be far different from this when Holy Spirit gets here. You will be bold when he gets here. You will have authority when he gets here. You will have purpose and clarity and vision and direction when he gets here. You will bear a message that has power to change lives and eternal destinies when he gets here. So Jesus is displaying to them an action that helps them look forward to Holy Spirit's arrival. Okay, so now back in chapter 21, right? That's the context for chapter 21. We see a group of disciples who don't seem to have that Holy Spirit yet. Right, they're a bit aimless still, but it's clear that they see Peter as their leader. So Peter says, hey, let's go fishing. Let's do something that we know. Let's do something that we're comfortable with. Right? Let's do something familiar. And so they all go with him. And they're out all night, and they do not catch a single fish. So verse four. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. So, so they don't recognize Jesus. Now, for what it's worth, um, Matthew tells the, us of a similar event to this, but he tells us at the beginning of Jesus' story with the disciples. Right? When, this is when Jesus called the disciples to follow him. He said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Right? And, and John expects that most of the people who's reading his gospel, he expects that they're aware of that story because his gospel comes later than all of the other gospels. So so he expects that the people in churches are aware that this is how the disciples were called. John is now including for us this story of something similar that happened after Jesus was resurrected. Now why would he do this? Why would Jesus do this same action a second time? Why would John tell us this story? Well, both Jesus as he takes this action and John as he tells the story. They both know something, and that is this. People who have failed need personal reminders of our God-given purpose. Right? That's what he knows. He knows that, that Peter, 
needs a very personal reminder of his God-given purpose. He knows for what it's worth that the disciples need a very personal reminder of their God-given purpose. And John includes this story of Jesus calling them, of performing this miracle that we're about to see. He includes this story to remind all of his readers that, hey, if you failed, Jesus also wants to give you a very personal reminder of your God-given purpose. So Jesus appears to these disciples from the shore and he's gonna create this scenario in which they'll remember the, back to the time that he initially called them. They'll remember the initial purpose that they were given. And, and so as John tells us this story, it's his intention that we would remember the very same thing along with them, that we have been given a purpose. So John 21 verse six. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Jesus performs a miracle that enables them, after a night of not catching anything, to catch more fish than they could possibly pull into the boat, and this triggers a memory, likely for all of them. And it was also intended to be a message to them, this personal reminder, you have a purpose, you have a special task. Remember when I called you? I'm still calling you. I'm still giving you responsibility. You are those who gather people in, right? You're fishers of men. You gather people in, you help them see, you help them experience, you help them respond to the good news of God's kingdom. So verse seven, that disciple whom Jesus loved, remember this is John, how he refers to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said therefore to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Now, what would drive Peter to do this? They're in a boat. The boat is going to go to shore. They will get there pretty soon. Why would he jump out of the boat and go to Jesus? Well, remember, they're all a bit purposeless right now. They're not really sure what to do next. And remember also, that Peter is expected to lead the disciples in some way. He's now seen as kind of a point person in a way. And remember a third thing. Jesus, or Peter failed miserably with Jesus. Remember that whole thing that we were talking about, failure and reprimand and you know, identity and all of that stuff. Peter had one of those moments where he failed with his leader and he still has to recover from that moment. And so all of this is happening. The last time that, that Peter had a clear sense of purpose was when he was following Jesus' command, Jesus's commands. And Jesus, he hasn't been around really, right? After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to them a few times, but he's going around making all of these different appearances. And so when Peter hears, hey, Jesus is here, he jumps into the water. Peter swims to go meet Jesus, and the disciples, they row their boat to shore. They're towing a net of fish behind them. And then what we see is that they all sit down and they eat a meal together on the beach. Now, I, I wanna draw your attention to the interaction between Jesus and Peter, what happens next. So, what Peter did with Jesus, when he betrayed Jesus, you remember uh, Jesus said, Peter, you're gonna uh, deny knowing me three times before the rooster crows. What Peter did to Jesus was a significant level of betrayal. In fact, um, 
like if you look at rabbinic tradition for a a follower of a rabbi to deny knowing that rabbi or to uh, deny association with that rabbi, it's likely that the level of betrayal that Peter committed was pretty much on the same plane as the level of betrayal that Judas committed, right? Like in terms of the way a rabbi would look at things, those things are equated with each other. And, And Jesus also, add to that, Jesus has said, clearly to his disciples, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. And so, so the Christians who are receiving this gospel that John was writing, you need to know too that denying Jesus was a really big deal for them because at the time that John is writing, persecution in the Roman Empire is way up. Uh, there are people, people holding the Christians at sword point saying, uh, deny your faith or die. Right, like that is what is happening to the Christians. And so denying Jesus is a really big deal also to the Christians who are reading this for the first time. They're facing active persecution for their faith because they refuse to deny Jesus. So how are they supposed to, supposed to respect Peter and the work that he's done up to this point if he is a betrayer on the same level as Judas? And so John includes this story to show us how Peter is restored to his original purpose. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Now, if you read this passage in the Greek, and some people are aware of this, right, you will notice that there are different uh, Greek words that are used when Jesus says the word love versus when Peter says the word love. I want you to know, I'm not gonna make a big deal of those differences, other than to say that John, as he is writing, he's trying to show us that Jesus is approaching this conversation differently than the way that Peter is approaching it. Right, because this original conversation, it happened in Aramaic, right? It's, it's, it's Jesus and Peter talking in their native language, right? So they weren't uh, intentional at the level that the passage is intentional to tell us about this exchange, right? But John is trying to show us something. John tells us, and he includes these different words to show us that Jesus is approaching this conversation a little bit differently than how Peter is. Jesus is trying to have a pointed conversation with Peter, a very intentional conversation with Peter, and Peter is kind of displayed to us as maybe missing the point a little bit. In fact, his response is, is written in a way to show us it's kind of nonchalant, right? So Jesus says, do you love me more than these? We can actually imagine that Jesus is pointing to the fish that he just brought in, right, that, that the disciples just brought in, that are sitting there in a pile, and yes, they've cooked some and eaten some of this, but, so, go back to the identity thing with me for just a second. When he points to the pile of fish, he says, Peter, do you love me more than these signs of your success as a fisherman? Remember that old purpose that you used to live for, how you used to be a fisherman, how you used to stay out all night and fish, and and now you've brought in a big haul. Peter, I have a question for you. Do you love me more than that sign of your success? And Peter's like, yeah. Like what? What a silly question. Of course I do. You know that, right? And Jesus says, then Peter, step out of your role as a fisherman 
and step into your role as a shepherd. Right? He's making a distinction. Right? To this point, you have been a fisherman, but now you have the role of a shepherd. Peter, you need to teach and preach and share my words and care for and lead people. Peter, you are no longer primarily a fisherman. You are a shepherd that happens to know how to fish. Right? So verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. This is the second time, it's the same thing, right? We have two different words that uh, Jesus is using and Peter is using and they're showing a difference of the way that they're approaching the conversation and, and he's essentially saying, you know what? Since you love me, Peter, accept the new purpose that I have for you. So verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So notice that this conversation becomes increasingly more painful for Peter as he engages in it. Right, we start with this sense of nonchalance, but then as the conversation progresses, it's as if Jesus is asking Peter, are you sure, Peter? Are you really sure, Peter? So Jesus is showing us three important realities. He's showing us, John is showing us and his readers three important realities and Jesus along with it. The first reality that he's showing us is this. Number one, Jesus doesn't play games with sin. At this point, it's clear. After, uh, after Peter had denied Jesus three times, he needed to affirm his love for Jesus three times. John includes this for his Christian readers of the day so that they can see Peter is making right for the, the things that he had done wrong up to that point. Jesus is when he asks Peter three times, he's actually making Peter answer for his betrayal. So church, the fact that grace and forgiveness and reconciliation is free to us, the fact that we do nothing to earn it, the fact that it is a gift to us does not diminish the seriousness of sin. Right? If you belong to Jesus, he will make you answer for your sin. He doesn't ignore it. It's such a massive problem that he died for it. So, so his forgiveness does not make sin less significant or less serious. But his forgiveness by his own blood proves how much more massive his love is for us than our sin is great. So Jesus, what he's doing with Peter is he's actually making Peter deal with with his failure. He's making Peter reckon with the things that he has done wrong. As we follow him, you can fully expect him, Jesus, to make you deal with your own failure. I mean, I know plenty of people who will speak to you from experience on that point, myself included. 
He, he makes us deal with our failure. It's not optional for us to not deal with our own failure. It's part of how he helps us see just how si- significant his forgiveness is. Right, so Jesus doesn't play games with sin. The second thing I want you to notice is this. Rightly dealing with sin should hurt. Right, so Peter, it says that Peter was grieved. Right, Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him three times. Peter was grieved because he was forced to realize something. That if he would deny Jesus, it's actually pretty fair for Jesus to doubt his level of devotion and commitment. And when Jesus asks the third time, he realizes, oh, that thing that I did, it was, it was very serious and it needs to be dealt with. And so he is now grieved over the level at which, it's like, it's as if Peter, when he hears the third question, here's Jesus asking, Peter, should I have reason to doubt your love for me? Because that's what his prior action displayed. His action actually displayed that Jesus should have reason to doubt his love. And here Jesus gently brings Peter to the point of realizing that his three times betrayal is something that needs to be answered for. His three times betrayal is something that calls his character into question. His his betrayal is something that he should be grieved about. It should ache his heart that his pride and his fear and his self-preservation were so powerful that it would cause him to deny even knowing Jesus. So as I talk about opportunity for restoration and opportunity for finding purpose, know that Jesus is also inviting us to acknowledge and deal with how we've betrayed him and betrayed others. That we actually have to like, answer for those things to a certain degree. Like you cannot gloss over the importance of confession and repentance as you come to Jesus. Right, but then there's really, really good news. Number three, no sin can remove you from kingdom purpose. Right, so notice what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you can't be disqualified from an office, right? There are other places in scripture that say, you know, these are the qualifications for certain offices in the church, and disqualification is a very real thing. But disqualification from an office or a position like pastor or elder or deacon, that is not the same thing as disqualification from purpose. Right, so when a, if a person is disqualified from an office, but they repent and they get restored, they still have ministry to do. Right? They still have responsibility in the kingdom. Right? Those who repent and deal with their sin actually are consistently and continually given kingdom purpose. In fact, the way that we do most of what we do is from a constant position of humility before Jesus in a place of repentance and a place of recognizing our constant need for his forgiveness. And from that place, he leads us forward in ministry. So with Peter, his calling to teach, to lead, to shepherd, major parts of the early Christian movement, that comes into play here. And after being grieved by his sin and also by being restored with Jesus, the next thing that happens is Jesus goes on to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls, and then Peter preaches, and in one day, like 3,000 people decide that they're gonna believe in Jesus. They get baptized. Right, and then you go from there and Peter would feed and tend to and lead and play his role and lives would be changed by the power of the gospel because he was stepping into this renewed purpose that Jesus had for him. And I wanna let you know something else. Peter failed again after the Holy Spirit fell. 
We have marks in scripture that show us when he failed and you know what he did? He like turned back and he repented and was made right and continued to lead and teach and shepherd and God continued to use him. Okay, so what? So what? Number one. If you are a believer in Jesus, we have a life-changing post-resurrection purpose. It's written on the wall out there, by the way. We, we put the, the little decal on the wall so that every time we walk into the building, we're aware of why we're here and what we exist for. We are stories that God is writing about Jesus making things new. We exist to put on display the resurrection power of Jesus. That's, that's why we're here. Right, it's a reorientation of our gifts, our tools, the things that we have been given, our skills, in order to show the world that Jesus is actually alive and that he wants a personal relationship with people. To show people that Jesus loves them and is inviting them into the new thing that he is doing in the world. And on top of that, we have Holy Spirit, which means that we have been equipped by Holy Spirit in specific ways to display his post-resurrection power. We have a message to share. We have gifts to use, right? So, so even if you don't see an immediate avenue to use them in some program inside the church, you know what? You have spaces that you inhabit in your work life, in your home life, in your neighborhood life, and if God's equipped you to teach, you know what you can do? You can start a Bible study like in your workplace. If God's equipped you to lead or to minister to people through words, like you could start something in your neighborhood. If God has equipped you to pray, you could go out and find opportunities to pray for people like at the grocery store. You don't need to be at church to pray for people. Right? If God's equipped you with selfless service, you know what? There's probably like two or three neighbors around you who are maybe elderly and could use some help with some things around their house. Right? And yes, your church is also a place that has needs. Like, and in the coming weeks, we're gonna let you know more about these things, but, but we need people to consider stepping into kids' ministry, to plant long-term gospel seeds in the lives of kids and help shepherd our kids. We need gifts of service to help with our technology on Sunday morning. We need gifts of hospitality to help guests get acquainted with our church and learn uh, you know, who we are. We uh, have been blessed here with gifts of giving and continue to need gifts of giving as we move into the future. We need gifts of teaching and wisdom and words of knowledge and people bearing truth of God's word and gifts of prayer and service for all of us together as we interact with each other in our uh, Bible studies, in our small groups, as we see each other in this place. We need all of these things. Holy Spirit gives us these gifts for a reason, to display his resurrection power to the world, right? To do things among us that the world might see that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father, to speak those things out there so that people might come to faith in him. Right, so, so there is a purpose for us. We actually have this life-changing post-resurrection purpose. So number two, if you failed, which we all have at various points, repent and return to ministry. Right, every Christian always has purpose and ministry to do based on our gifts. And the blood of Jesus is powerful. The message that we've been given is powerful to welcome people into forgiveness of sin. And we each have a ministry to do. Obedience to Jesus is engaging in that ministry. So even if you failed, he still has a purpose for you. 
You are not exempt from that purpose. You are welcomed by Jesus to deal with your sin and return to that purpose. And the amazing thing is when you do deal with your sin, like he doesn't sit over you with a heavy hand in any other situation. Peter, he would have been fired, right? Like his rabbi would have said, no man, peace out. Like, I don't need this, right? That, I, I mean, it's not unheard of. And for what it's worth, like, for the kind, the level of mistake that, that or the level of failure that that was in, in Jesus's ministry, like that, that would have been comparable to a fireable offense in a job today, right? right? But Jesus takes the time to help Peter see what he's done wrong. He restores him to his place. And he says, the thing that you've done wrong does not overcome your purpose. Your sin does not overcome you pur- your purpose. Peter, you still have a significant role to play. And the message is true for all of us as well. Our failure does not overcome our purpose. We still have a significant role to play in the things that he's doing in the world. Church, would you pray with me, please? Father, I, um, I just pray for, for anybody who senses that failure has been uh, keeping them away from stepping into uh, the things that you have for them. Lord, I pray that you would give a very real sense of your peace and your presence. Welcome them uh, through your reconciliation as they confess and recognize the things that they've done wrong, I I pray that they would receive the rich forgiveness that you have to offer. For myself, I easily recognize my own failure, my own falling short, and I am so grateful that you do not stand over me to reprimand me and to uh, hold success over my head and say, achieve, achieve, achieve. You're not doing it well enough but that you gently show me my own weaknesses and my own faults and you invite me to lay those down and receive your gift of forgiveness. Jesus, thank you. I pray that you would lead all of that to that consistent disposition of heart. And Holy Spirit, clarify for us exactly what is the role that you have called us to play. We all have this participation in sharing the message with the world, displaying to the world the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. But, um, but how we carry out that role as individuals is going to look different from person to person. Yes, we all have words to speak in different times and different places. And yes, we all have things to do. But Lord, you've, you've given us certain gifts And so I pray that you would clarify what those purposes, what those roles are for each of us and help us to step into them. Uh, As we continue in worship here, as we enter into communion, we ask for a very real sense of your forgiveness of what you have done for our sakes. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for worship. We ask that you would be, continue to be lifted up as we continue forward here. We pray this in Jesus' name.